we find that God chooses an unlikely king and sends Samuel to anoint the beeve to be king over Israel tonight. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You know, Israel desired a king for all the wrong reasons. Even so, God would have anointed a king on his own terms if the people hadn't forced the issue. Before the nation's establishment, God had a king in mind for Israel. As far back as Genesis 49, Jacob prophesied that a scepter or a ruler would rise from Judah. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, there God anticipated a king by providing rules for his conduct. I believe that God already had a man picked out to be king of Israel. It was David. And to David, God made incredible promises, ultimately fulfilled by David's heir, King Jesus. But here's an important lesson. So often our desires and God's desires, they're really not that far off. We want a good job. We're seeking meaningful relationships in our lives. We're working to accumulate necessary resources. God wants the very same things for us. The conflict comes in why we want these blessings and how we go about getting them and whether we're willing to wait on God to bring them about. Our desires can go unchecked. They can spin out of control or they can be governed by faith. By forcing the issue, Israel's desire for a king led to an undesirable king. Be careful when you force God's hand. That's the point. Uncontrolled desires lead to undesirable ends. Well, it didn't take long for Saul to prove that he was an unfit king. His failure to obey God after his victory over the Amalekites caused God to reject Saul's kingdom. I believe it was God's intention all along to appoint a king, but a godly king, a spiritual king, a king with character, a king with faith, all that Saul was not. Well, chapter 16 begins, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. God has rejected Saul, and he is about to choose a replacement. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now chapter 15 verse 34 tells us that Samuel was in Ramah at the time, and Saul was in Gibeah. And in order to travel from Ramah to Bethlehem, where Jesse was, you had to pass through Gibeah. In other words, you had to walk right through Saul's backyard. And Samuel knew if the king learned the purpose of his mission, oh my, he would try to kill him, snuff him out. Saul had become an impulsive, paranoid, egotistical tyrant. You remember back in chapter 14, Saul had already proven how far he'd go to protect his position. Rather than admit his rash value, remember what he did? He tried to kill his own son, Jonathan. Saul had turned into a madman. Well, God provides Samuel a cover, he says. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. 
In other words, when Saul hears the word sacrifice to the Lord, don't worry, he'll lose interest. (laughs) He won't follow you. Jesse will, but Saul won't. Saul is all about Saul. Jesse, on the other hand, would be a man happy to rejoice in an act of worship. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel took one look at Jesse's oldest boy and thought, This has got to be God's choice. He's so strong. He's so handsome. But isn't that exactly what they said about Saul? Once again, Samuel is about to choose a king for all the wrong reasons. He's only looking as far as his eyes can see. You know, construction experts explain that many of today's homeowners are using the wrong criteria when they search for a house. Here's what people who buy a house agonize over. The size of the bathtub. The width of the crown molding. And they ignore the really important stuff. The size of the floor joists. The strength of the foundation. These are the things that homeowners really ought to look for. They need to see beyond the surface issues and see the real important elements. So many people want a home with flash and splash. This may be how people choose a home, but it's not how God chooses servants to bless and to use. God looks at foundational issues. He looks below the surface at the heart. Man looks at the appearance. God looks at the heart. Now, the Lord rescues Samuel from this shallow evaluation in verse 7. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Hey, God rips off the veneer. God cuts right to the core. Image, stature, wardrobe, physical attractiveness, pious posturing, never a factor into God's analysis of a man. When God sizes a person up, He puts the tape measure not around the person's brain or around their bicep or around their waistline. Aren't you glad? (laughs) He puts the tape measure around their heart. That's how God judges a person. You know, in one of Arthur Conan Doyle's novels, The hero, always the hero, Sherlock Holmes, he makes this statement. My favorite Sherlock Holmes statement. He says, The most attractive woman I ever knew was hanged for poisoning three little children for their insurance money. (laughs) So much for attractive women. Uh, I mean, so much for appearance. The book, The Faces of Greatness, contains photographs of the faces of 90 famous people. But of those 90 faces, 70 have noticeable blemishes. 35 have moles or warts. 13 have multiple freckles or liver spots. 20 have obvious acne or other pimples. And two have highly visible scars. And yet each one of those 70 people overcame a flawed appearance by possessing a courageous heart. Here's my point. 
God doesn't care about a person's appearance. And neither should we. The color of your skin, the cut of your clothes, the style of your hair is totally irrelevant to God. If a guy comes into our church with a purple mohawk and a facial tattoo and a hardware store full of body piercings, don't you sit back with a judgmental attitude. Reach out in love. Look beyond the outward appearance. Always look to the person's heart. Our job is to represent God, not our own bias and our own prejudice. And you know, sometimes God will use people who don't fit the mold, who don't really look the part, just to remind us that His qualifications, His requirements are different from our own. I'll never forget the night I made a hospital call down at the DeKalb General Hospital, and I decided to go on my motorcycle. In fact, I parked my bike in the clergy parking lot, stuck my parking permit on the fairing of my, my motorcycle. And when I went to leave the parking lot, I held up my ticket to the attendant, and he just stared right past my ticket. And he looked at me real strange. And I said, I'm a pastor. I, I, need, I need to leave. And he, and he looked at me on my motorcycle, and he, I was wearing a kind of a black jacket and you know, a helmet and all. And, and I could tell he was sizing me up, man. Finally, I just looked at him and I said, hey, they just don't make them like they used to. <laughs> don't size somebody up based on their outward appearance. This is how man judges, but God looks deeper. God looks at the heart. Verse 8. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Wasn't Eliab, wasn't Abinadab. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Jesse had seven strikes against him. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. God is about to choose the runt of the litter, the kid brother, the caboose of the family. Imagine, God has rejected this lineup of wallies, and he chooses the beef. And so he sent, and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Ruddy means that he had a rugged complexion. Probably still had zits and a few acne scars, a couple of pimples. Bright eyes probably is a reference to blue eyes. Unusual for a Jew. Imagine a middle schooler with blue eyes, pimple-faced, wavy black hair. He's just come in from the fields. He stinks to high heaven. He smells like the sheep. This is God's choice to be king. What you see is not always what you get. You know, it's been said, Saul had the appearance of a king, but the heart of a peasant. While David had the appearance of a peasant, but the heart of a king. When it comes to people God uses, you can't judge a book by its cover. Church history is full of examples of men and women used greatly by God who were initially passed over by mission boards and by pulpit committees. They lacked the training and the experience and the credentials, but God saw in those people some intangibles. 
God saw what qualifies them. Not their gift inventory, not their psychological examinations. What qualifies them was their heart for Him. You know, it's interesting to me that God Himself seems to emphasize that David had little to offer of his own. Notice our text doesn't even mention David's name until after he's been anointed king. I think that's interesting. Not until verse 13, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, does David's name even get mentioned. When David strolls in from the fields, God tells Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. His name finally gets mentioned when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. In September of 1993, the second place Montreal Expos were chasing the first place Philadelphia Phillies. Trailing 7-4, to four, the Expos had two men on base when the manager decided to pinch hit. He sent to the plate a rookie named Curtis Pride. On the first pitch, Curtis laced a double, driving in both runners. It was Curtis Pride's first big league hit, and 47,000 fans were screaming at the top of their lungs. That's when the third base coach motioned for Curtis to tip his hat to the crowd. But you see, Curtis didn't understand. He thought he had a problem with his helmet. You see, Curtis Pride is 95% deaf. Finally, it dawned on him that he should tip his hat. After the game, a reporter asked Curtis if he had heard the cheering of the crowd. Curtis pointed to his heart and he said, Here, I could hear it here. This is why God chose David. David wasn't governed by circumstances or other people's opinions. David followed his heart. David could hear it here. He was motivated by conviction. He listened and loved and longed for God with his heart. He prayed and petitioned and praised God with his heart. He feared and followed and fought for God with his heart. David is forever known as the man after God's own heart. This is what God is looking for in us. This is what God is looking for in a leader. Well, verse 13 says, So Samuel arose and went to Ramah, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. In other words, God removes the hedge of protection around Saul. The Holy Spirit now comes upon David, and an evil, demonic, distressing spirit begins to torment Saul. And it's interesting how this distressing spirit was corralled. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Notice the distressing spirit had come from God. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player of the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you and you shall be well. And so Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Notice the antidote for the distressing spirit was a skillful musician who could play praise to God. I find that very interesting. Praise and worship can drive out the evil spirits that torment Saul. One author writes this, Satan is allergic to praise. So where there is massive, triumphant praise, 
Satan is paralyzed and bound and banished. I agree with that. To Satan, praise is like the sound of fingernails crawling across a chalkboard. When we worship God, it grates at our enemy. It causes him to cover up his pointed ears and flee. Well, we're told, Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. David is brought to Gibeah to serve in the royal court. And then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul. And again, notice that God sent the evil spirit. You know, God is sovereign over all the world, over all the universe. He's sovereign over the angels. He's sovereign over the demons. Even the demons are forced to do God's beckoning when he calls, when he commands. Evil spirits, demons, are under God's control. And whenever this demon would torture Saul, we're told that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Evidently, David was a very skilled musician. 2 Samuel 23 verse 1 refers to David as the sweet psalmist of Israel. David wrote at least 73 of the psalms. That's almost half of the Hebrew hymn book was penned by David. David played the harp. Kind of the guitar of the day. And I would imagine David could rock on that lyre the same way Eddie was doing on his guitar a few minutes ago. And when David played his lyre and he sang praises to God, then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. You know, we don't usually think of worship and warfare as going together, but they do. Praise to God reminds Satan of his inferiority and the folly of his insurrection. When we glorify God, Satan must either stop the praise or drop his diabolical work and run. This is what happened when Saul would go into one of his funks. David was called in to praise the Lord. And as he did, the demon departed. You know, on occasion, I can sense an emotional cloud sort of rolling in like a sudden summer thunderstorm. And you know, I've learned to recognize those kinds of moods as spiritual attacks. And I have found that the sure cure against that kind of, you know, sudden depression is to just stop what I'm doing and take a few moments and spend some time worshiping the Lord. Whenever I do, the cloud rolls out as quickly as it rolled in. Victory is won. I'm telling you, praise is powerful. Well, chapter 17 begins. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered together at Socho, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Socho and Ezekah and Ephesdamon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah 
and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. The Valley of Eli is one mile wide and there's a brook about 20 feet wide that cuts through the valley and it overflows during the rainy season. Whenever we go to Israel, we always make a trip down to the Valley of Eli. There's a McDonald's nearby, so it's just kind of a dual purpose. <laughs> Today, wheat rises in the Valley of Elah. Today, there's wheat where armies once stood. Verse 4. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, about nine foot nine inches. Goliath was three inches shy of bumping his head on a basketball goal. It's interesting that there are non-biblical sources, historians, that have reported during their time men of enormous height. Herodotus, Diodorus, Siculus, Pliny, all mention people at least seven cubits tall, even taller than Goliath. Did you know that a man named Robert Wadlow was eight foot eleven inches when he died on July the fifteenth, nineteen forty? Goliath's enormous height seems strange to us, but it's not without precedent. We're told that he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Goliath's body armor weighed 150 pounds. Imagine. A coat of mail consisted of metal strips sewn together with leather. Goliath's armor had the strength of steel, but the flexibility to fight. He also had bronze greaves on his legs, sort of like catcher shin guards. And he had a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. We're talking a thick, stout piece of timber, probably two and a half to three inches in diameter. Throwing that spear would be like throwing a balance beam. Can you imagine the strength that it took? And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. Goliath carried this huge spear, and its head alone weighed 600 shekels, are 20 pounds, just the spearhead. Imagine the strength that it took to chunk the spear. If Goliath were around today, we'd all have accused him of taking steroids. And he may have been guilty of far worse. For this word translated giant is actually the Hebrew word Nephilim. And it's used back in Genesis chapter 6 for the offspring of the sons of God... And the daughters of men, of course, in the Old Testament, the sons of God was a a term used to refer to the angels. And it's possible that fallen angels or demons had taken human form and had sexual relations with women on earth. Jude calls them the angels who did not keep their proper domain. You remember this was going on in a widespread manner before the flood. That's one of the reasons God had to judge the earth and start over with Noah and his family. Apparently, though, isolated outbreaks of the same perversion had occurred later on in Palestine. That's why God had taken such severe measures 
among the people. When Mo, he told Moses, when you go in and when you fight against the people, you're to kill them all. Don't leave any survivors because they were a polluted race. The spies who went in to the land of Israel, remember what they reported? They're giants in the land. They reported the existence of these Nephilim. Deuteronomy chapter 3 notes a Canaanite king by the name of Og, who was said to be a giant. Still later, in Joshua chapter 14, Caleb fought against the sons of Anak, who Numbers chapter 13 refers to as Nephilim. And guess where the Anakim, the sons of Anak, lived in the days of the judges? Joshua 11 verse 22 will tell you that they lived in the city of Gath. Which where? Was, was whose hometown? Goliath. Goliath may have been the product of spiritual performance enhancers. A sort of demonic steroids. And if this is true, Goliath was more of an agent of Satan and an enemy of God than we might have first assumed. This encounter in the Valley of Elah is definitely a case of spiritual warfare. This is a spiritual showdown. Now, Goliath not only had size, but he had a mouth. He could talk some smack. Goliath was a trash talker. As a matter of fact, one extra biblical source, the Targum of Jonathan, a Jewish writing, it claims that Goliath had boasted of being the Philistine who killed the sons of Elah, Hophni, and Phinehas, and had drugged the ark and put it in the temple of Dagon. He claimed to have killed countless Hebrews. Apparently, Goliath was the Philistine counterpart of Samson. Verse 8. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now, you got to understand, ancient warfare was brutal. It was always hand-to-hand combat. It was ugly. It was bloody. It was brutal. Even the victorious army suffered thousands of casualties. Often, rather than fight a battle, armies would send out a champion who would sort of square off in a winner-take-all death match. In verse 4, Goliath is called the Philistine's champion. And that Hebrew word champion means middleman. Goliath was the Philistine's representative. And he taunted Israel to send out a man who would accept his challenge and be the Israelites' champion. He was looking for a man brave enough to fight him. And daily the challenge went out from Goliath. Verse 10. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Can't you find somebody brave enough? And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And if we were looking for a counterpart in Israel to take on Goliath, who was the tallest man in Israel? (laughs) We learned that. Saul. The king would have been the only man who came closest to matching Goliath's physicality. The only problem was our king was a midget spiritually. 
He was a coward. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. Now the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. And the three oldest followed Saul. In other words, they had joined the army. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephoth, about a bushel, of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to the brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp of the army, and was going out to fight, and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. David is excited. He arrives just in time for some action. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Notice Saul had sweetened the pot trying to find a champion for Israel. And he had offered a threefold reward for any man brave enough to go out and defeat Goliath. Great riches, his daughter in marriage, And depending on what kind of woman she was and how pretty she was and all, the greater blessing, a lifetime tax exemption (laughs) for the champion himself and for his extended family. I'm talking quite a windfall. And yet nobody is courageous enough to step out and take on Goliath, even with this added incentive. Verse 26, Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Notice David wasn't motivated by the reward that Saul had posted. He understood that God's honor was at stake. He cared about the glory and the honor of the God that he loved and he served and he worshiped. And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? In other words, he's questioning his little brother's motive. 
Eliab sneers, I know your pride in the insolence of your heart, for you have just come down here to see the Bible. You're just showing off again, David. He's accusing David of grandstanding. You know, I think the older brother was jealous of the younger brother's courage and faith. Wally's scared to death, and when the beaver shows some courage, he gets jealous. You know, it's sad when your own brother tries to douse your faith. At times, this is the biggest opposition of faith. It's not the scorn of the enemy, but it's the skepticism of a friend. And I wonder how often that occurs in church. Where someone rises up in courage. Someone wants to do a brave thing from God. And their own brother gets jealous and wants to douse their courage. I hope that doesn't happen here. Well, David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Saul has finally found a willing warrior and he immediately sends for David. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. David, you're just a kid. You'll be slaughtered by this battle-tested Goliath. But David explains he's not without his own experiences. He said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Wow. What courage, what faith. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. God had delivered David from the mouth of hungry lions and hungry bears. Why can't God deliver him from a big mouth Philistine? David's confidence is in the Lord. And Saul said to David, Go. He was impressed. Go, and the Lord be with you. But he makes a mistake. So Saul clothed David with his armor. And he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his army and he tried to walk for he had not tested them. And I'm sure he kind of stumbled around, fell on his face. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Saul isn't brave enough to fight Goliath but he sends his armor out with David. And yet when David suits up, Saul's armor doesn't fit. It's obvious. You know, when God calls you to fight, take what you know will work. Don't trust in somebody else's program. Don't trust in somebody else's gimmick. Take what God has proven to be true to you. When you're up against a giant, that's not the time to start looking for different techniques and different tactics. Faith rests on what it knows to be true. Faith doesn't get desperate. 
It doesn't start canvassing the self-help stores, you know, looking for the newest and the latest. David takes a couple of steps in Saul's armor and he starts shedding it. He says in verse 39, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. David trusts in what he's tried and what he's tested. A single slingshot killed the lions and the bears. It'll drop this giant too. David will fight clothed with faith, not in somebody's oversized armor. And there's a lesson here for us. If the Bible, if prayer, if the power of the Holy Spirit has strengthened saints for centuries and sustained believers in the throes of death and worked miracles and won victories and even slain giants in Jesus' name, then why should I feel I need to adopt the latest Christian fad? For 2,000 years, the church did fine before Rick Warren's purpose-driven church or Bill Hybels' seeker-sensitive model. Now, hey, I'm not complaining. I'm not criticizing. God has used these methods with Rick and with Bill. But rather than strap on their armor, I've got to trust in what God has shown me. So many times we think the Bible's not enough, that prayer's not enough, that the power of the Holy Spirit's not enough. And so we, we think we've got to adopt all these little things that are going on out there. Trust me, God has given us the tools in His Word through prayer, through His Spirit, that have won many, many a victory before this latest fad came along. It has sustained the church in the throes of persecution in over countless centuries. It'll work for you too, don't worry. Well, this is what David does, verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. And of course, the question always arises, why did David pick up five smooth stones? Was he afraid he'd miss? Did he need five shots? No, no, no. We learn in 2 Samuel chapter 21 that Goliath had four brothers. True. David was planning one shot for Goliath, and then if his brothers wanted to jump in the fray, he'd knock them out too. That's why he took five smooth stones. So the Philistines came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. And so the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. One commentator has suggested that when Goliath lifted his head to his supposed gods, his helmet fell off, leaving his forehead unprotected. And providing David a clear shot. Wouldn't that be ironic? As he's lifting his head to his gods, he exposes himself. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. (laughs) David's certainly not intimidated, is he? 
And this day I will give the carcasses of the camps of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and with spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David went out with the end of this battle clothed with armor, trust me. But it wasn't Saul's armor. It was the armor of God. It was the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the spikes of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. David went out clothed in armor all right, but not Saul's armor. It was the armor of God. Verse 48. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it, and he struck the Philistine in the forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. Boom! David took aim. He twirled his sling, and then he slung that stone through the air. And I don't think it was just that David was a good shot. I think at the very moment that stone left his sling, God took over the trajectory of that rock to ensure that it landed right between the two big fat eyeballs on Goliath's head. I believe God took that stone and made sure it landed between the eyes that David had looked into so fearlessly and so squarely. And I'll bet you the thud was heard all the way back in Bethlehem. Mighty Goliath didn't know what hit him. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword... It probably took both hands for little David to lift up Goliath's mighty sword, for this middle schooler to pick up the warrior's sword. And he drew it out of his sheath and killed him and chopped off his head with it. With one swoop of Goliath's sword, David chopped off the giant's head. God had given him the victory. The camp of Israel was supercharged by God's victory. The Philistines were deflated. David was triumphant. Israel had finally gotten ahead. A route was on. And when the Philistine <laughs> when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistine as far as the entrance of the valley into the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Shariam, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent, kept the head as a trophy. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. 
Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. What a picture. David holding Goliath's head by his hair, blood still dripping from his severed aorta. (laughs) What a picture. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And so David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Chapter 18. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. You remember, Jonathan was also a man of faith. Remember his venture of faith back in chapter 14, his daring venture of faith? With David's victory over Goliath, Jonathan sees in David a kindred spirit. They both love God. They're both jealous for God's glory. Aristotle once wrote, Friendship is a single soul dwelling in two bodies. This was the case with David and Jonathan. They had so much in common and they became fast friends. Saul took David that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. He became a permanent member of Saul's court. Verse 3, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, this was a deeply devoted friendship despite being fraught with complications. Understand the dynamic between David and Jonathan. As Saul's son, Jonathan had the right of succession to the throne. Jonathan was destined to be king in Saul's dynasty. He was Saul's successor. But David was God's choice. David had a spiritual claim. And you can see the potential conflict between these two men. And yet despite despite that conflict, Jonathan never once resented God's appointment of David. It's amazing. As a matter of fact, here Jonathan submits to David's authority by surrendering to him his sword. This is a powerful action on his part. I think it's a credit to both men that they remain friends and through it all never became rivals. Well, verse 5 says, So David went out whenever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul sent him over the men of war. David was the head of the IDF. Israel's Department of Defense. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. And so the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David grows so popular that he develops his own fan club. They're singing, they're dancing in the streets. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And how do you think Saul reacted to getting second billing? Oh my. Verse 8. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, 
they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul doesn't like being the undercard. David is more popular than the king, and Saul is jealous. And so Saul eyed David from that day forward. Guys, beware of jealousy. If God uses you to slay thousands, be happy with that. I'll take that. Don't get jealous, though, when God uses your brother or your sister to slay tens of thousands. F.B. Meyer warns us, Jealousy is one of the worst temptations that can beset us. It arises in the most unexpected ways and times. When everyone around us is possessed by a common joy, it steals in like a ghost and settles down on some heart when it scourges with whips of fury. Resist its first entrance. While I'm glorifying God, I notice the work that God has done through another person and I become jealous Beware, jealousy is a slippery sin. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. Notice what happens when he harbors sin in his heart. He's inviting this distressing spirit back. And he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Saul erupts in this demonically inspired rage And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence, and it happened twice. Saul chunks the spear at David's head. I'm going to pin him against the wall. Which teaches us, never put a javelin next to a jealous person. Nor a telephone. Nor an email nor an instant messaging, nor a little chat line. There are a lot of ways to pin an innocent person against a wall. Beware of jealousy. It's amazing that David never tried to do to Saul what he had done to Goliath. He could have pulled Saul's spear out of the wall and chunked it back. Ever thought of that? But Saul was not an uncircumcised Philistine. He was Israel's king. He was God's anointed. And David knew that one day he would be king. And he expected others to honor his appointment. Therefore, he needed to honor Saul's appointment. Again, David was a man motivated by principle, not convenience. He was a man motivated by conviction, not anger or revenge or circumstance. Verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed from him, removed him from his presence. In other words, the royal court was no longer big enough for both David and Saul. And made him his captain over a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Now you recall Saul was in David's debt. He had promised a daughter 
to the man who killed Goliath. But Saul's motive here is not to pay off a debt or to make a promise. He has some ulterior motives. Notice, for Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. He's going to create a little ruse here whereby he's going to send David out in harm's way and hopefully the Philistines will kill David rather than Saul have to do the dirty work. So David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life? Notice his humility. Or my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king. But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Meholothite, as a wife. And why this happened, we're not sure. But certainly it was a hurtful act on Saul's part. Promise David your daughter and then at the last minute, right before the wedding and the honeymoon, you just jerk her right out and you give her to another man. It was obviously designed to tear into David's heart. But Saul has another daughter. And Saul is shrewd. And maybe he can use Michael to put an end to his rival David. So he says, now Michael, Saul's daughter... Love David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And here's why. So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king is delighted in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? In other words, David is concerned that he can't afford the dowry of a princess. You understand the customs in those days. The wife came with a dowry. And surely a princess, she, she commanded a, a large dowry. And David's afraid. He, he's a humble man. He comes from poor means. Can he ever afford the dowry of a princess? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, but 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. So Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that no red-blooded Philistine is going to give up his foreskin without a fight. I've never been in such a fight. But I would imagine if you're fighting for your foreskin... You're going to be pretty fierce. You're going to be pretty serious about the battle. And Saul figures that surely one of the hundred angry Philistines are going to to trump David. By the way, for you golfers in the crowd, this is the first skins game in history. Did you? Verse 26. So when his servants told David these words... It pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired 
Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins. <laughs> and I don't know whether he did it, he brought them in a basket or... You know, like one of those strings, you know, with a fishing string. I, I don't know how he brought them to Saul, but... <laughs> anyway... And David brought their foreskin, probably threw them out on the, I don't know. And they gave them in full count, they counted them, full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. Saul had asked for a hundred foreskins. David pays a double dowry, two hundred foreskins. And this makes Saul furious. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved wisely, more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. You see, all that Saul does to harm David backfires on Saul. David grows in stature while Saul continues to shrink. 